My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In today's episode, I consider the relationship between commerce and international law. Commerce itself is made of two elements. On one hand, we have resources, and the other, markets. So many of the international rules that have been developed have been about providing then international legal subjects with access to resources and access to the markets where the commodities could be bartered. I explore this relationship with a discussion on cotton. Cotton was the very first global manufacturing industry and is in fact the source of many of the laws that we have today, laws that pertain to trade, to banking, to finance, um, and even to intellectual property. All right, so week three. Week three. Um, I'm actually very excited about today's uh, lecture. Very excited about today's lecture, uh, in part because it's the first time that I deliver it in this format. I've had to rethink it based upon what we've done over the past couple of weeks and based upon some feedback that I've received from your seminar tutor. So I'm very excited actually with what I've come up with and I'm hoping that you are as excited by the end of the session. What I would say, or what I will say, is that today's session allows us then effectively to bridge or to make the link between some of the more abstract theoretical aspects that we've examined to date with modern international economic law. So with then the legal framework itself. This is where the bridge is going to happen. Now, before we begin with today's topic, a brief recap about last week as it's relevant for what we're going to explore then shortly. Now, as I said to you, international economic law is the regulatory regime for global capitalism. Capitalism itself necessitates a particular type of legal system, a particular type of legal system, one that is described uh, comprehensively in the work of a sociologist, German sociologist by name of Max Weber. Now, what he pointed to was how historical systems, historical normative orders, often what we refer to as traditional orders, were too arbitrary. Many of the principles contained within these traditional orders that were often religious-based were or are, many of them still exist today, eternal. And because they are eternal, often deriving then from God, it means that they cannot be changed. Yes, they can be interpreted, maybe they can be tweaked, but ultimately you are left with the principles as they stand. That in itself relates to the other type of the other form of domination that Max Weber describes. We have the traditional one, but then we also have the charismatic one that is built around a particular individual, a particular ruler, a particular leader. Now, again, the challenge there is the arbitrariness of these norms, the arbitrariness of these rules. These rules are there and they are to be obeyed. Some of those rules might be logical. Some of them might make sense. You might agree with them. You might regard them as moral, 
ethical, equitable, but that's irrelevant. The point then is that the law was or is structured in a certain way that we are bound by, that we are stuck with. And the arbitrariness doesn't help because the arbitrariness means then that what is law today might not be law tomorrow. Those characteristics prove to be obstacles for the development of a capitalist system, a capitalist system that requires some of those other characteristics that Weber describes, predictability, certainty, autonomy. And the, the rational legal system that ultimately emerged in Europe emerged as a result of a struggle between different groups. Now you would have studied this in legal history or in the modern English legal system. The struggle that took place that gave rise to the Magna Carta, going back to the 13th century. The struggle that took place that gave rise to the Bill of Rights. Not the Bill of Rights Act that we have today, but we're referring then to the Bill of Rights, 1688. These were struggles between emergent classes, emergent merchants, emergent landed gentry, landowners, that were wresting power away specifically from the monarch, from the sovereign. The sovereign was one of these traditional rulers. Why did the sovereign, why was the sovereign the sovereign? Well, by divine right. God is the one that empowered the queen to be queen. That is still the case today, that traditional system. But there was also an element of arbitrariness to it in that you were having to deal with the king, with whomever the king happened to be. And as one king died and their son inherited the crown, well, now we have to do with the caprice of this new king. What was their personality? How did they treat the commoners? What did they think then about serfdom? So again, we are dealing with those traditional systems and this new emergent classes of landowners and later in time, particularly around 1688, of merchants were trying to wrest some of the power away from the king. And the Magna Carta, as well as the Bill of Rights 1688, these were compromises between the sovereign and these new classes, and it is only in 1688 that emerges this notion of a parliament. Only in 1688. And there are a couple of really important cases, which I'm sure you've studied. Prohibitions del Rey would be one of them. Important cases that set the rule that even the king is subject to the law, and that parliament is the lawmaking authority. Now notice there what we had was the emergence then of this rational system that Max Weber is describing when he's writing much later in time. And he's showing that division that emerged between the religious system that once dominated with the secular system that was arising. Now there are a few key points about this secular system. It was popularly, or it is popularly regarded, 
as legitimate, meaning we have a duty to obey. We accept that Parliament is the lawmaking authority. Why is Parliament the lawmaking authority? Because the Bill of Rights Act, sorry, the Bill of Rights 1688 says Parliament is the lawmaking authority. Who wrote the Bill of Rights 1688? Parliament. We notice the circular logic, but it's still legitimate. We still feel bound by it. So it has that legitimacy. It is rational in that the laws that emerge, there is a process by which we can make laws. Bills can eventually become laws after they've been submitted as bills, after they've been read. A parliamentary subcommittee has reviewed it and then a vote is had and the law is adopted and it becomes law. So there's a process, it is rational. And importantly, it is autonomous. Now, again, we can agree or disagree with the laws that are in place. But ultimately, we have that possibility of making new laws. We don't like the law that's in place. We repeal it and make a new law. And this is what happens on the regular. That is not something that could be done historically, as we are often bound by eternal principles. But that raises another point that is essential, particularly when we are studying what we are going to look at today in relation to commerce and markets and the laws surrounding it. What justification is there for any law that we ultimately adopt? Now take a moment and think about that. What is the justification? Now, historically, we were bound by what God had instructed. So it's an omnipotent being that is dictating what our duties are. And you're a believer or you're not a believer, but if you're a believer, and most people were, you were bound by the Word of God. Eliminate that. The Word of God is gone. Okay, well, we are dealing with a capricious ruler who ultimately could do bad things to us if we did not obey, which, again, was often the case. So coercion, fear, survival, all of that was part of it, so we obeyed. But then take the laws that we have today. How do we decide which laws should be adopted versus which ones should not? How does Parliament choose? We know how to make valid law. The process is in place. I know how to create a valid law. But what is a just law, a good law, framed otherwise? What is the right law to adopt? How do I know? And at the end of the day, I do not. All I have is validity and invalidity within a rational legal system. There is no barometer, yardstick, measure by which I can evaluate, validate the justness of the law itself. I am stuck with valid and invalid. That was the exchange. I wanted to do away with the eternal principles, do away with the arbitrariness. So I've adopted one that is coherent, that is consistent, that is autonomous, that is rational. But I did that by stripping it then of the notions of morality that dominated and substituting them with others. Consistency, coherence. Now that is relevant to our discussion today 
on commerce, on trade, on markets, and on all the law surrounding it. And today we're going to proceed in four parts. In the first part, we are going to look to the essence of commerce with a focus on transoceanic commerce. And what I am going then to tease out is how commerce is built around resources and markets. And ultimately, all international economic law deals with those two elements, access to resources and access to markets. That is it. In the second part, we will consider cotton. It's going to be a discussion about cotton. Yes, that plant. Right? Many of you are wearing product of that plant right now. We are going to consider cotton because cotton was the very first global manufacturing industry and it is the commodity that gave rise to virtually the entire international economic legal framework that is in operation today. In the third part, we'll explore a little bit about how Europe became the dominant player within the cotton manufacturing industry. And in the third part, we will look to the struggle, the struggle that has emerged for control over this manufacturing industry and the role that law played, international economic law played, in privileging some actors over others. Now, for those of you who have studied international law with me, or have at least listened to the podcast, you know that international law evolved as a result of the encounter, or modern international law as we understand it today, evolved as a result of the encounter between Europe and non-Europeans. That is the essence of it. And this continental project, this European project, was ultimately universalized. And that is the legal regime that we are dealing with today. It became universal in reach, but also universal in character. Now Europeans, with a bit of history, Europeans set out in search of resources. This is what they went after. They were in search of resources, gold and silver primarily, but there was also an interest in other commodities, such as spices, such as textiles, and a little later, crops as well. These were the type of commodities that Europeans set out to discover and ultimately to appropriate. Now think of the timing. We are referring then to the late 15th century, Christopher Columbus, this is following then the Spanish Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition involved then the routing of Muslims and Jews from within Spain by Ferdinand and Isabella. And there is a desire now to continue this campaign against the Muslims who inhabit the south of Europe. And maybe even taking this campaign further into the north of Africa into the Middle East and targeting specifically which city? Jerusalem, precisely. 
Now, how are you going to do this? Well, you do this with troops. And how do you get troops? With wealth. So Christopher Columbus promises Ferdinand and Isabella that he is going to find gold and silver and he is going to bring it back. He is going to bring back spices and textiles and they're going to use this as a way to amass their wealth and conquer, reconquer the lands that had been taken by the Muslims. So Christopher Columbus arrives in the Caribbean and as we said before, he finds these people. Natives are there. And he asks, what can I do with the natives? But who does he also find there other than the natives, the indigenous, the Indians, as he termed them? He also finds other Europeans. And this is why we speak of that period in time as being the birth point of international law, as now that the Spanish are arriving in Hispaniola, as they termed it. They're arriving in the Caribbean, and there are these natives, and there are these other Europeans who are also at sea on these ships. The question becomes, what is our relationship to them? How do we regulate the relations between the Spanish and non-European on one hand, and on other Europeans who are also Christians on the other. Those were the questions that dominate. Now, the relationship between Europeans and other Europeans, that's resolved by the Treaty of Westphalia. Each of us is sovereign, and these are the rules that each of us commits towards in relation to one another. So, inter-European law is the Treaty of Westphalia. You're interested in understanding inter-European law, you look to the Treaty of Westphalia. If you want to understand how Europeans would behave towards other Europeans when they are beyond Europe, meaning at sea, well, there we look at the law of the seas, the laws of the seas. And this takes us then to Hugo Grotius. Hugo Grotius, international lawyer of the 17th century, who happened to work for the Dutch East India Company and wrote what effectively became the foundation of international law as it pertains to the seas. This is how Europeans would treat one another at sea, which was different from what they would do on land. But there were also a number of international legal doctrines that emerged at the time pertaining to the relationship between Europeans and non-Europeans. You've heard of terra nullius, that is a doctrine that was devised specifically to deal with the lands of non-Europeans and to justify what became a mass campaign of expropriation. A mass campaign of expropriation that was legal under the international law crafted by Europe. Now, what were the key rights to emerge within this newfound legal system, use gentium as it's termed, specifically the rights to settle and the right to trade. There's an element in there related to the right to proselytize, but we don't have to worry about that now. That's more relevant to international law. Now the focus is on international economic law. And those two elements are key, the right to settle and the right to trade. Why are those two essential? Well, what did I say before? What is the basis of commerce? 
resources and markets. Resources and markets. How do I access those resources? I only access those resources if I can settle the lands where those resources are located. And then what am I permitted to do with the resources that I appropriate? Well, according to Usgentium, according to the law of nations, I have a legitimate right to trade them. Now, if you frame it another way, we say with law, we are not just interested in rights, we are always interested in responsibilities. And when we study subjects, subjecthood in international law, we often term a subject as an actor who has both responsibilities and rights in international law. So the right to settle and the right to trade has to translate into a corresponding duty, a corresponding responsibility known as the right to hospitality. You can settle. I must be hospitable towards you. You settle. I must be hospitable. And in relation to trade, I am obliged, compelled, obligated to engage in commercial transactions with you, whether I like it or not, because this is guaranteed in use gentium. Now, I often say to students, and they don't always believe me, but I say to understand international law, you should really study international economic law. The basis of international law is commerce. That is the starting point. It wasn't about human rights. It wasn't about war. It was about commercial transactions, access to resources, and access to markets. And the consequence to those who violated their responsibilities under international law is war. As we said, Europeans can engage in a just war against any non-European who rejects or who violates, who infringes on their right to settle and their right to trade.